Welcome, everybody, to the latest edition of Smith and Jones. Eric Smith, Paul Jones with you. Yes, we've been on a bit of a hiatus. I don't even remember if it was late June, early July, but either way, it's been a few months off. And finally, something popped up in your little podcast feed, a little reminder. Boom, latest episode of Smith and Jones. So we appreciate you sticking around. And make sure now every week that you are subscribed to the podcast. Make sure you download the podcast. Make sure you follow and like and rate and review and all that good stuff on Google, on Apple, on Spotify. Otherwise, wherever you get your podcasts, you can find Smith & Jones with fresh content coming every week from now right through to the NBA season, the end of the NBA season, and into the off season as well. Jonesy, great to be back again with you. I don't know. I, I've lost track. I don't have enough fingers and toes anymore as I think. It's 20-plus years doing these shows together, whether it's hoops or Smith & Jones talking ball with you. This is exactly where I want to be. Well, because uh, because you know me and numbers, it actually has been 24 years that we've been working Damn. together. And uh, I detected in the in the wayback machine there when you said that I de- detected a little bam like that was wasn't that in living color bam with the uh, <laughs> yes. there you go and you people that are like 20 years old go back and look at in living color one of the great one of the great funny shows uh, comedy shows. And we were fortunate as we go back, the, the very first choreographer of the Raptors dance pack was one of the fly girls on In Living yeah. Color. So yeah. we've, we've, had it, we've had it going on, so to speak, for a long time. And uh, we're, we're heading into another season. But E, we got to look back a little bit at what a great summer it was uh, for Canadian basketball. I mean, it's, it's been pretty consistently good on the women's side, but the men finally got it done and uh we are lucky enough to have on the line with us right now a guy that was a big part of that and dwight powell dwight great to chat to you this is the first time for me that uh we've been able to talk since uh, the team qualified in france and you and i had the same reaction I-, I saw your tears of joy in the locker room and i can tell you as as a board member and a guy that you know just would die for the red and white i was sitting on a bed probably early in the morning, I don't know, it might have been seven or eight o'clock Eastern time uh, with the same reaction, tears in my eyes, uh, knowing that, uh, you know, Team Canada's uh, on the men's side anyways, finally going to make it to the Olympics. Just uh, take me back through the tournament coming together. You guys had a lot to go through with Jordy coming in as a new coach, uh, you know, reestablishing that chemistry. Just kind of take me through it up to that moment, Dwight, when it finally happened. And, you know, you, you know there's a, a really good chance, and touch wood here, uh, that nothing goes wrong and you're going to get a chance to play in the Olympics, man. No, it was, it was, a, huge, it was a huge moment. I think um, that showed in the emotions that kind of overflowed, for sure, for a lot of our guys. Um, it's been a long journey, and there's been a lot of bumps along the road. And... Um, We've fallen short many times, and I think that stuck with a lot of us. That stuck with a lot of, you know, Canadians in general, um, especially knowing how much talent we've had over the years and, and not being able to get to that, you know, big world stage um, has been has been tough to deal with, and it's been something that we've, you know, had to carry with us every off every summer, every time we went with the national team. So um, a little more adversity in terms of having, you know, a bit of a, a coaching change and, and style change and, um, you know, some moving parts going into to camp before, before the World Cup was, you know, something I think we're all prepared for. I think 
Um, everybody shows up to camp. One thing I love the most about the national team is everybody shows up to camp with kind of the same mentality, which is we're here to win. Um, egos aside, um, everything from outside, we try to block out and, and just try to figure out ways to, to win for our country. So, um, yeah, there was an adjustment period, and um, we got we were fortunate enough to have a lot of time to spend with each other. We we you know had some games internationally, um, to, you know, to sharpen the toolkit before we made it to the all the way over to the World Cup, which was super important, but we also had a lot of time to spend with each other, which I think was great in terms of building our chemistry and, and getting to know one another, and um, that helped, I think, a lot in those, you know, closer games down the stretch. Hey, Dwight, you just touched on this a little bit, but I, I want to maybe dig a, a little bit deeper, um, especially when it comes to the, the mental aspect of what you guys went through and, and what you had to overcome. You, you just said it seems like, you know, you guys have been delivered curveballs, uh, you know, many times over the course of the last X number of years. I, I Jonesy and I, I, I bring it up all the time. I was there in person in 2015 in Mexico City to see how things unfortunately unfolded. I wasn't there a couple of years ago in person, but Jonesy was uh, in Victoria when things kind of went sideways. And here we are even at this tournament. It's like you guys are running rough shot, you're having a time, and then right when it matters most – boom there's some slippage and you run into a really good team and it kind of had that feeling at least as a as a fan let alone as a broadcaster you're watching going oh my gosh here we go again but for you guys to be able to recover to get that next win to still ultimately qualify for the olympics to still end up meddling what did it take who said what what was it in terms of a coming together as a group? Like, how did you guys overcome yet another hurdle to finally this time actually get it done? Um, yeah, I, I don't know if I could pinpoint a specific thing that was said or a specific thing that was done. I think that's, that's what's beautiful about it. I think we all entered this, this summer with the same mentality, like I said, is win for our country. And um, we knew we were going to face adversity. We knew we were going to come up against some great teams, some veteran teams. We also know that we were, we are a great team and we have veteran guys that have been through it and have been through that, um, that feeling of losing that final game and, and not making the cut. So, um, yeah, I think there wasn't much that needed to be said other than let's go get it done because um, we knew what it meant to us as a group. We knew what it meant to the country and um, we, had, we had bigger goals than, than that week. So, um so, yeah, I, I couldn't pinpoint one thing. It was it was a collective. From the very beginning of camp, I think we were preparing for that moment. Dwight, how much chatter is there now uh, amongst you guys? Everybody's off with their NBA team or, you know, club team or wherever, but it, it, the anticipation looking forward to next year. Is there – I'm, I'm guessing in this day and age there's still a group chat where guys are talking to one another and there's still communication going on. Uh, over the course of, of of the season right now. Yeah, guys are still in touch, and and obviously a lot of our guys are in the league. We get to see each other, you know, at least once, sometimes two or three times throughout the year. Um, so we're locked in. I think everybody is a professional and and um, you know respects the game, and they're locked into their teams right now and, and the goals that they have in front of them in terms of their professional seasons. But I think everybody has it, you know in the back of their mind, that, that little bit of excitement that's going to just build over the season and, and into the offseason, into the summer um, when we get back together. So uh, it's definitely something that we're all very much looking forward to. 
Hey, hey, Dwight, you mentioned earlier the, the coaching change as well. I don't, I don't know if this is a fair comparison to make, but at least here in, in Toronto, going back to a month ago, a little more than a month ago, at media day, right before the start of Raptors training camp, it was interesting to me hearing some of the players from the Raptors speak about Toronto's new head coach, Darko Ryakovich, and um, how impressed they had been already with him and how – a lot of the players had said, I, like, I'm, I'm singling out even a guy like Gary Trent said, I've had more conversations with Darko in like three weeks than I have with other coaches that I've been with for even three years. And that wasn't a shot at any you know college or professional coach. I think it just spoke to the relationship perhaps and the open communication perhaps that Darko has with his players versus perhaps some other coaches, high school, collegiate, professional, otherwise. Maybe this is a reach, Dwight, but what I see from the outside and again, I'm not talking Nick Nurse versus Jordy Fernandez. I'm merely talking Jordy Fernandez, period. It seems like he is a guy that is very much clearly X's and O's, clearly knows his stuff, a young mind, a fresh mind, but also very much a player's coach as well and fit in seamlessly to what you guys were trying to do. Am I off on that assessment or, or, or you know, give me a sense of your now new, not-so-new head coach, Jordy Fernandez? <clears throat> Um, yeah, I mean, first of all, I'm not a huge fan of, of comparisons, especially with, um, you know, different group circumstances and, and, and a whole bunch of factors that play into, you know, the team's success. And, and I thought Coach Nurse did a great job of, of communicating with us and, and I had a great relationship with him and, and was able to, you know, have that player-coach relationship. And I, I, I felt comfortable in that um, very much so, but... Um, to answer your question, yeah, this, this summer was, was great. I think um, it's very difficult for a head coach to come in and under the circumstances that he did and, um, you know, take the reins of, you know, a group that has high expectations and is hungry to win at the highest level um, in kind of one of the bigger moments in our, in our you know, men's basketball history. So um, hats off to him for coming in and, and executing first and foremost. But, but yeah, he's definitely – just a great human being, and um, I really enjoy getting to know him over the time we had, and um, definitely a player's coach and, and easy to communicate with. And um, But, yeah, in terms of a professional, in terms of coming in and doing his job, it's, I don't think people, many people can understand how difficult it really is to come in um, in the situation he did and, and help us get to where we got after, you know, the, the situations that we've been in in terms of not quite making the cut. So, um, yeah, he, he did an amazing job and I uh, really look forward to, to playing for him in the future. Dwight, you talk about the future and there's been a lot of chatter with, um, you know, who's, who's going to be on the team next year? What, what happens when you know, other guys, you might want to add other guys or what's, what's the sentiment like in the room? Because it's such a high, but you know that maybe there's a chance that we could be a little bit better if, if, if certain guys are willing to play, but there's also a loyalty and a, and a camaraderie of guys that are, that are in the room that made the commitment to get the team where it is. What are your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, that's, it's always tough. You know, there's, there's always the what ifs and there's always, you know, I wonder what would happen or, uh, and that works both ways in terms of what could be the team or the situation in the future, as well as what could have happened if, you know, the situation was different in the past. So, 
Um, I think our guys are locked in on, like I said, their professional seasons right now with that excitement in the back of their mind. And they're going to do whatever they can to prepare themselves to help um, our national team win um, next summer. So I don't really think um, too many guys are caught up mentally in, in, for lack of a better term, but that, that drama that could potentially, you know, the guys that mm-hmm. the media, I'll say, is, is talking about. I think um, there are a long, long list of players that have contributed to this opportunity that are not getting, you know, credit right now necessarily to the level that they should, um, simply based on the way the FIBA format has been set up. And our, our team that played in this World Cup was not necessarily that full group, the team that qualified for the World Cup. So there's, there's been plenty of situations where guys have had to make sacrifices, guys have stepped up, um, and I think our, our federation has done an amazing job of internally at least rewarding those guys and making sure that um, they understand that they are a part of the national team and, and everyone's contribution is key and is, is crucial to, to us achieving you know, our ultimate goal of meddling in the Olympics. So um, with that being said, uh, it's obviously would be difficult for anyone who expects to play to not play. Um, right. That's just human nature. Um, but at the same time, the ultimate goal is to, is to bring a medal home to, to Canada. So um, I think we're just going to focus on that. So what, whatever happens, happens as, as much as that's not an answer at all to your question. <laughs> no, I, I, I know exactly. No, Dwight, I know exactly where you're coming from. I know exactly because, uh, you know, listen, on a, on a different scale, and Eric knows I love golf, if, if Tiger Woods can be holding the four major trophies at one time and say, oh, but I can get better, I'm going to change my swing, you're, you're always looking, right? It's the nature of an athlete. You're always looking to get better. My late father used to say, when you're, true, when you're through trying to improve, you're through. So I, I know exactly yep. where you're coming from, and I, and I understand your answer uh, totally. My, 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 my last question is, the world has this perception of Dylan Brooks, and I'll say this. I know Dylan uh, is good friends with his high school coach. Um, the, guy, the guy loves to play and he wants to win. Um, what, what would you say to people who probably have that different perspective of the guy? I mean, you know, there's a game coming up where Houston's going to play the Lakers, and he's, you know, people are saying, oh, he's chirping again. But, I, I mean, to me, it's the nature of sport. And the guy went out there, and he played his backside off this summer and was a huge part of what, what the team was able to accomplish. Yeah, I would say for anybody who has, you know, anything negative to say or, you know, wants to talk, to, to keep doing that <laughs> because <laughs> it, it only feeds him more. It only, you know, it only pushes him to be greater. So, um, but, yeah, I think I've known Dylan for a long time, and, and his competitive nature is something that, you know, you can't overlook, and it's something that's, you know, it's in your face, especially when you're playing against him. But um, over the years of, of competing beside him, with the national teams, I think the thing that people don't get to see is, is how much he really is invested in winning. Um, and, I, and it comes through in his emotions on the court. It comes through in his you know, tenacity defensively and um, the way he approaches the game. But I think where it's most effective is, is mentally and physically the way he prepares for opponents. Um, I, I don't know if people really understand what kind of detail it takes to be the guy who has to guard the best player every single night and who not only 
does it but takes the challenge on publicly and, and is willing to stand on his performance um, for better or worse. So um, he takes the job very seriously and um, also as an offensive threat, being able to, you know, challenge guys on that end of the court, but to make sure you can stand on his defensive, you know, the things that he's saying and preparing for in, in terms of the game plan, the detail he goes into is, is high level. And uh, I think uh, he may not get credit for that, but being able to see how he operates in the, in the highest, you know, um, the highest level of competition that I'll be able to, as, as our, you know, situations are right now with the national team, um, that's something that I think gets overlooked. And, and I think that's where the passion comes through is because he's invested so much in that game. He's invested so much in that specific possession. He knows what to expect, and, and he's been thinking about it since, you know, that game was presented as, as whatever was next in terms of an opponent. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a blast having him on the same team, and it's, it's horrible having him, you know, across the line. <laughs> Hey, Dwight, uh, listen, we appreciate the time today, man. Maybe we can bug you again at some point over the course of the season actually talk about the Mavericks, but we appreciate you kind of reminiscing about the summer, and congratulations again on everything you and the team achieved, and we look forward to not just this NBA season, but certainly next summer with Team Canada as well. All the best. Thank you. Appreciate it. Great chatting with Dwight Powell. Outstanding, outstanding conversation right there. Hope you enjoyed that, folks, because I certainly did as well. Uh, and we're going to keep it rolling here. We're not stepping aside for a commercial break. We're going to roll right through. Jones, we've got another uh, friend of the show, let alone friend of ours, away from the show, joining us uh, in mere moments here. Yeah, uh, Scott McCullough, um, you know, former head athletic trainer for the Raptors and, and was with the Grizzlies in Vancouver and Memphis, a Canadian guy, been in the NBA for a long time. He, he stepped away right now, but... Uh, I just I just know Scotty and that itch will bring him back at some point. And uh, he was one of the people that was really in on the whole load management thing, Eric, when you think about uh, Kawhi Leonard coming coming to uh, coming to Toronto. And I mean, Greg Popovich kind of started it, but the term really became popular in Toronto, didn't it? Yeah, big time, big time. And And now it's like almost like the league is trying to get away from that to some extent or at least trying to change the or tweak maybe the 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 phraseology the wording in terms of what they're trying to do with players and trying to keep players on the floor for the fans if for no other reason and, and whatnot but I'm sure we're going to dive into all that as well so um, I'm going to let you start off right here uh, as we bring into the conversation Scott McCullough. So Scott great to uh, catch up with you and uh, we kind of know what you're doing but maybe you can tell our listeners uh, you know, what, what, what your day entails and what's going on since you've, uh, since you've moved on. Uh, you're still looking after people. Yes, gentlemen. Hey, first and foremost, uh, thank you for having me on. It's uh, great to catch up with uh, both of you in chat. Uh, yeah, since, uh, since I moved on, I'm doing some uh, consulting on the side where I'm uh, treating and training various uh, People, athletes, uh, you know, everything from the weekend warrior to the high-caliber athletes as well as doing some uh, some clinical work. But it's it's keeping me busy, and the best part about it is I'm home for dinner every night, which my wife is just loving. Oh, Well, for now, anyway, Scott, for now, I'll, I'll say <laughs> that. But, uh, you know, at some point she'll say, go get a job, go to work. We, we, <laughs> Eric and I have both been there. Um, Scotty, I, I, I want to get into a couple things. Uh, 
the player participation policy in the NBA, and I thought Kawhi Leonard said it best. He said, no policy is going to make me play more games. I, I want to play, and I work out, and I train in the summer and during the season to play. And I, I look at it interesting coming from Kawhi Leonard because, well, everybody thought what Greg Popovich did earlier uh, was, you know, the idea of resting guys and stuff that was – that you know that was that was load management. Uh, you guys basically invented that when Kawhi was here. You you that term became more widely used. And Scotty, from what you've told me and Eric, load management is not rest. So so take us a little bit through how you came like the term works, what it really is, and how you guys did it in the championship season with Kawhi. Well, I think, yeah, like you and I have talked about before, there's sort of a misnomer of what true load management slash rest is. I think, you know, a better terminology for it is injury management or previous history injury management is where you're trying to take an individual with some sort of previous injury, whether it's a knee, an ankle, a back, and increase the amount of activity slash load that you put on that specific area and the rest of the body to allow them to return to full participation without either creating more issues with that particular existing issue or creating issues in other area of the body due to compensation. So you're always trying to push forward without taking steps backwards. As we had always said, you can't speed anything up. You can only mess it up. So that's, that's the, sort of the way that, that I and, and we'd always looked at it, is trying to progress without having to take steps backwards. Okay, so, so Scotty, let me ask you this then, and, and pardon me if it's a long-winded one here. I was actually listening to Frank Isola and Brian Scalabrini on, on Wednesday morning on their show on, on uh, NBA Radio on Sirius XM. And one of the things that Frank was talking about, it sounds like they're having Joe Dumars coming up on the show. I don't know if it was – it maybe it was already on Wednesday. It's coming up on Thursday or Friday. I don't know. But either way, one of the points that they were raising on this very subject is they wanted to talk to Joe about what the league is now doing or saying. And I'm kind of putting words in their mouth. But essentially, uh, Adam Silver and the NBA this year are saying, like, no, no, we expect our players to play. In fact, we've now got this – in-season tournament and there's going to be fines levied for players that rest or that don't have legitimate reasons to rest and we want guys playing as many games as possible because it's important to our fans especially fans on the road that don't get to see let's say in Toronto LeBron James more than once a year Steph Curry more than once a year etc etc but then part of me looks at that Scotty and says well hold on a second I thought the league already had rules or policies in place that were basically saying you can't rest a guy just for the sake of rest. You can't be sitting for reasons that aren't legit. So I'm trying to differentiate between what the rules were versus what they are now and how the league is actually going to impose fines and penalties and whatnot for guys that do choose to either sit, rest, fudge the rules, you know, create phantom injuries or otherwise, and how that then maybe impacts the athlete, let alone the training staff that is trying to get said athlete either ready for that game or saying, no, 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 we need to just teal for this game so that you're ready for the next game. I know I threw a lot at you there, but I'm, I'm confused kind of by the whole thing. Well, I think the way that the, the league and, you know, just looking at it, you know, from 
everybody's perspective is that, you know, what they're looking at is trying to get their more visual players, you know, out for, you know, the main broadcasting, you know, for the, the big games, the TV games, the in-season tournament games. And I think it gives the teams a little bit more leeway that, yeah, they're not saying that, you know, you're, you're beyond the time where teams are, guys are playing 82 games. That's just, you know, when I first came into the NBA, that was always the goal, play 82. We've sort of, we're past that now, just with the way the sports science has changed and the way that we're looking at, you know, treat not only treating injuries that are occurring now, but also previous injuries and previous history. So I think that what this is allowing is for the teams to look forward and say, okay, I think we need for player X with this injury, how do we manage this according to the rules? And again, I think they what the NBA will do is they'll look at it if you know more than one star. Again, I think that's what they've set it up as is okay if you if player X is resting tonight for a specific injury, your other either all star all NBA should should probably play. If they can't play, why is is there a particular reason why they're out? And then they will take a look at it, discuss it, and then you know see if anything needs to be done. I don't think they're going to do anything day of game. What they're going to do is in after the fact is review the situation with the medical staff, maybe even with the player through NBA and say, okay, does that pass the smell test or not? So I think it's allowing them teams to still give their players days off, but not, you know, due to rest. It's more, again, where I go back to, it's more of an injury manager. How are we managing or how the teams managing their players and their specific injuries, issues over the course of an 82-game schedule? So, Scotty, that, that management, as you call it, might entail, after playing 32 minutes on Tuesday and Wednesday's a back-to-back, they can't play 32 minutes. Could they play 12? Or is it better to manage the injury in a way that there's a workout in the afternoon or before the game and that's it? Like, like, Because that's what people are saying. Well, they, okay, played 32 minutes last night. Now you're on, as Eric said, on the road in another city where they only see you once. Can't the guy put on his uniform and play eight minutes or 10 minutes? But to your point, maybe the load or the injury management means that, no, we're going to work out in the afternoon and, you know, before the game when the rest of the guys are are in the meeting, getting ready for the game, and then shower and watch the game on the bench. Is that is that a fair assessment? Because if that's what happens, then fans need to know that. Well, I think, you know, yeah, I think, you know, we never, when we look at, you know, load managing or, injury managing a lot of times you know, the next day, depending on the symptomology and whether, you know, every player in every situation is going to be different. If a player played 36, you know, 32 to 36 minutes on the first back-to-back, comes in the next day and his knee is the size of a grapefruit, you know, that will indicate sort of what you're doing. Is if, or if he comes in as I'm sore, we test him out, you know, probably best if he rests tonight. Again, each individual and each individual situation is going to be different based on what is going on, what is the history, you know, do they have other things going on at that point in time. So for the player to come in and play 
12 minutes or eight minutes, is that what the coaches want? And is that what the player wants as well? As you know, you say to, to the coach, Oh, you've got player X only for eight minutes tonight. Or what I would, they rather have, okay, I know I can play these other guys and have a flow to the game rather than worried more about, am I only playing him eight minutes or is yeah. it in four minute stretches and things like that? There's also what is best for the player, but it's also what is best for the team that night to try to win the game you know you're trying to manage manage situations within the game and we've had that in the past where a player is coming back from an injury and you go to coach and sit pregame and say you know he can only play 18 to 20 minutes tonight but it's only going to be within you know four to six or six to eight minute intervals because a lot of times it's not just the overall minutes that they play it's the continuous minutes and that's a lot of things that the teams are monitoring now so if a guy's playing 36 but it's the continuous minutes is the guy playing 12 to 16 minutes straight rather than sort of six to eight minute intervals and being fresh at the end of the game those are again all little things that the medical staffs are looking at the statistics you know the the biometrics and that now is how do we manage it not only over the course of the season but over the course of in game so the players are fresh at the end of games and within the games of how are we managing, if there is a minutes restriction, how are we managing that within that minutes restriction? You know, we're not going to players, you know, 20 minutes, you're not going to play them two 10-minute stretches. You know, that's just not the, not feasible. So that's why when you start looking at, you know, could a guy play eight minutes the next night? Well, what is best for not only for the player, but what's best for the team right. and for the coaching staff to put together a scheme to play that next night. Because when you're going into back-to-back, the coaches are getting, you've seen it, coaches are getting on the plane, and a lot of times they're starting to put their schemes together after the game the night before. So who do I have? How many minutes can they play? How, you know, how are we managing, you know, guarding their other players, and how are we putting together an offensive scheme and a defensive scheme with the players that we have? Okay, so Scott, another, another long one here for you. There's I wouldn't certain... I wouldn't expect anything different from you, Eric. <laughs> Thanks, because my my brain swims with this stuff because I, I I literally have the tennis match in my head of well, there's this, yeah, but there's that, yeah, but there's this, okay, but there's that, and th- I guarantee there's somebody listening right now saying, oh, come on, Scott, like forty years ago, twenty years ago, fifty years ago. We had guys playing 82 games. We had guys that were taking commercial flights, not on private charters. Nutrition wasn't what it was. Guys are eating fast food. Heck, even 30 years ago when the Raptors were first coming in the league, and you got players walking up to the concourse at Skydome then, getting McDonald's 90 minutes before tip-off. And now we know more about nutrition. We know more about sports science. We know more about the physiology and whatever of the body. We know more about the load management, everything else, but yet – I, again, I'm not saying these are my words. There's somebody right now saying, come on, really? These fine-tuned athletes with 17 assistant coaches and 14 trainers and private travel and five-star hotels, they can't get their bodies right for 28 to 35 minutes, three to four nights a week, 82 times out of 365 days, and yeah, okay, practice and everything else. They can't get themselves ready. But then the flip side of that is, well – no, they can't because of everything we've learned and because of how we've evolved 
in within the industry, within the sport, and the knowledge and the information that we do now have in today's generation that we didn't have before. So I really have that mental seesaw battle myself trying to figure out what's quote-unquote right versus what's wrong, what's more factual. Like, where do you stand on that as a fan, let alone then as a professional and somebody in the medical field that's dealing with this and answering these stupid questions? <laughs> Why? Well, I- I think there's two two parts to that is, you know, when you've seen it, you guys have been involved, in it, especially when you're looking at back-to-backs, when you're getting in at 4 in the morning, 5 in the morning, and have to get up and go out there and and play at a high level, and we're, you know, you, myself, and that we're, we're not playing NBA basketball, and we're exhausted, and we're not, you know, we give what we can, yep. but we're not giving our best. So our... You know, when we look at these metrics now, is our goal is to put the players in the best position to succeed, and which is best for them, not only for the short term, but also for the long term over the course of the season and the course of the career. And we've seen it in the past where you get at the end of the season and then you get into the playoffs and where these players are getting injured and missing those games where, you know, maybe over the course of, of a season, you don't put them out there at that point in time and you can prevent maybe some of those soft tissue type injuries because you know again if somebody steps on an ankle you can't avoid that if somebody you know fall gets undercut and falls to the floor you can't avoid that that's part of the game but as a medical staff we're always looking at how can we prevent the soft tissue types of injuries the hamstrings the calves the low back pain those are the kinds of things that we're trying to monitor to allow these players to play as many games as possible, but also play at a high level and to give them the best position to, you know, to succeed and the team, the best chance to win those games. Whereas if you're putting a guy out there who just can't move or can't make a shot or can't defend his, you know, the guy he's supposed to be out there guarding, what's, what's best for the team rather than looking down and say, okay, this, this guy, maybe he could be, the best option for tonight and we give this individual who's lugged you know 48 you know 40 minutes a night for the last two weeks a chance to recoup and come back a game or two later but again going back to the player participation policy is it's it's not that guys need to rest or miss games or injury manage it's when they're doing that i think that's what you're looking at Okay, so last one, at least for me, on on this subject, Scotty, and I think I'm asking you more as a sports fan because I acknowledge that you, on a medical staff, on a training staff, your primary concern is and should be the athletes, period. I get that. But how do you think the league then balances, let alone the organizations thus have to balance, ticket sales and the rising cost of tickets in a Mm. lot of markets where – we're now seeing in a lot of places, Scotty, and it's not just basketball, it's all sports, dynamic pricing where games are being charged more money for better teams. And obviously, normally, the better teams have the superstar players. So if we're getting to a point where at least the league is attempting to, as we've been discussing here, attempting to get players to play more, to appear more, but if that doesn't ultimately happen, how do you think that impacts the business of basketball and the individual business of each organization where you're charging fans a premium for a game or games seasons that might not feature 
the best of the best because players are being advised to rest or not play to make sure they're ready for playoffs, which, of course, costs even more money. Yeah, well, I think then just going again back to the every team, I think we all want our players to play. You ask any staff, any management team, coaches, even you know medical staff, we want our players to play. We want them out there on the floor doing what they do the best. And, you know, going back to the policy, I think what they're trying to do is, you know, make sure that, you know, as a fan, which, you know, you're looking at it from your perspective, is, you know, you go to see, you know, Team X that has three superstars and maybe one might not be playing that night due to injury or injury management, but you're still seeing, you know, the other two superstars, all-star mm-hmm. players on the floor. I think that's what, you know, they're really trying to avoid with this policy so that, you know, you don't, you know, show up to a game and, you know, all three or if some teams have four NBA all-stars, all-NBA players, that they're all missing the game that night. And then again, like you said, you know, you probably played a, paid a premium price for that ticket. So I think that's where the, the NBA is trying to say, okay, there's a way of managing these and it takes, you know, the teams to start focusing and looking ahead of, okay, we've got these players with these many miles, you know, 35 plus years old or 34,000 regular season minutes are sort of some of the, you know, the levels they've put at or a thousand regular season games is how can we manage them over the course of a season without impacting those, those games and those road games. If you could do it, do it at home, you know, TV games, we'd rather, you know, again, looking at the policy is when do you rest these superstars? And if there is an issue, is it, you know, due to injury? And I think that's what the league is trying trying to do. And I think all teams will tell you, yes, we'd like our players to play. We're going to hold them out because we think there's something of a medical issue, from again, from coming from a medical staff. This is what's going on with them, we feel, tonight. And sometimes it might be the player that comes to you and says, you know what, I just I don't have it tonight. This is what's bugging me. I just I can't go tonight. And as a medical staff, that's the thing where you look at it and say, okay, we have to trust you. There has to be a trust and respect between the medical right. staff, the coaching staff, and the players. And sometimes as a medical staff, you might look at a player and say, you know what, I don't think you should go tonight because of the way we're testing you, the way you're moving, everything. You're, there's a really an opportunity for something to go wrong here. And then I think that's where the NBA will look at it as if you're holding two stars out on a particular night, they will you know, call the team and say, you know what, why did they miss last night's game? And they will look into it and say, well, you know, because he had this or this, and we believe, you know, that, you know, his knee was swollen, his ankle was swollen, it was sore, and everything else. And I think they're going to try to work together with the teams of trying to make sure that everybody's on the up and up and following the rules, but also protecting the assets or the players. And I think that's why, you know, they put these rules in place. But, you know, teams are, aren't out there just saying, oh, I don't, for tonight we're just going to rest player A, B, and C. It's We're going to do it for a particular reason, or we put a plan together that will make sure we're putting the players in the right position to succeed while still following, following the policies. All right, Scotty. Um, you know, you talked about, there was a great line in there where you talked about the smell test because I'm sure – and that's what Eric was kind of referring to with some of the fans. And 
you know, you guys, you've seen the NBA for, I don't know, what, 20, 20 how many years, Scotty? Like, 20, <laughs> 20. Oh, wow. Wow. And, and and listen, you're like the old parent that can figure it out. Like sometimes this doesn't pass a smell test when a player says I'm injured. But as you said, you develop a trust. My, my question is, people will say, well, why don't you rest the guy at practice? But I know that you have um, you have ways of monitoring practice, too. Right. Guys wear chips in their shorts or wherever it is to to look at how much running and cutting and jumping and what the quote, the load is unquote in practice too. Uh, how much of an impact does that have Scotty? Because people will say, well, why don't you rest? You know, like, why don't you sit practice out? Stuff like that. Well, yes. And there, there's so many sports science, uh, things that they were using, the force plates that I am used, the, you know, the, like you said, the chips and the shorts and, they, and guys were, you know, do, rest at practice but again you don't want to follow a high intensity dropping down to a low intensity and then coming back to a high intensity so it's play 30 plus minutes take a day off and then come back and play 38 minutes i think you want to sort of keep some sort of level of intensity where the guys are working out because it's when you go from that low to high it's like you know you when you played you know high level basketball you know jonesy is great of an athlete as you are and you take the day off and you just lay on your couch all day long, you come back next day, you're more sore. So we, we've we always yes. looked at it as trying to maintain a level of intensity so you don't get those highs and lows, the roller coaster ride, so that we've found over the years that that actually reduces the, the rates of injuries, actually increases the levels of recovery. So we're not sitting when the guys are – missing practice they're not they're maybe not going as hard in practice there's still a amount of activity and exercises that they're doing whether it corrective exercises lifting you know pool work and things like that to maintain a, a moderate level of intensity so you don't follow that roller coaster ride um, that can actually lead to more issues so the guys just resting them and bringing them back the next day we found that that actually can create more problems I call BS, Scotty. You, you, you said high-level you know, athlete, Jonesy. You didn't say Eric. Hey, you just said hey, Jonesy. That's, that's hey. bogus, man. Man, oh, man. He, it wasn't both of the above. It was not both of the above. It was nothing against you, Eric. It was just uh, more trying to prop Jonesy up. Oh, okay, okay. Hey, I, I like that answer. That's better. That's better, Scotty. I appreciate that. Um, Scotty, we always appreciate the time, and, and no doubt we're going to tap into your uh, knowledge and expertise and perspective over the course of the season. So thanks for doing this, and we'll talk again soon. Uh, gentlemen, thank you very much, and uh, you guys take care. Welcome back to Smith & Jones. Eric Smith, Paul Jones with you. Thanks again to Dwight Powell and Scott McCullough for joining us to kick off the first edition of Smith & Jones for this 23-24 season. But we're going to keep it rolling right now as we bring in to the conversation 10-year NBA veteran, ESPN NBA analyst, and co-host of All NBA with Adam Mars on the City Network, Tim Legler. Tim, great to have you. And all I can think of every time I see your breakdowns on TV and hear you on the radio and you know, when your podcast is going, I, all I can think of is, man, this cat was born at the wrong time. That's all I can think 
That's all. If you were, <laughs> well, if you yeah. were, you led the NBA in three point percentage, and I think now, as I watch the game, like some of those shots, like when you took them, it's like you better make this Legler or else, like you're sitting down. Like the coach would stand up and yell your name, and if it went in, he'd say good shot. If he didn't, you'd be pulled out of the game. Now. I see guys that no way they should be shooting threes, heaving them indiscriminately like, oh, it didn't go down. I'm like, dude, there's a reason why you're open. I I just look at the game, Tim, and the way it's changed and the NBA kind of taking the value away from defense. But we we push forward and uh, the, the game is pretty entertaining to watch right now, isn't it? Yeah, it's very entertaining, and you're right. I mean, I think the biggest difference between what's going on now and, and, and like, when I played in the 90s, you know, you think about it, the year that I led the league in three-point shooting, I believe we led the league as a team in three-point shooting, and we were taken as a team. Like, I think I looked this up one time, like 18 threes a game, right? 18. That's now basically a quarter and a half in an NBA <laughs> game, right? You're going to see teams take 18 to 20 threes a half. These teams are taking, like, 40 threes a night. So – the difference is that, I guess, when I played, like, what, what was considered to be a quality shot or a good shot was something that permeated the entire roster and the coaching staff, and it, it filtered down even to the guys like myself who, you, you know, they encouraged to shoot the basketball, but your mentality around what was a good shot, that's what's changed. And so now I think when you watch games, there are certainly more skilled, highly skilled players than this league's ever had. More guys can dribble, pass, and shoot, I think, than ever. Um, but there's also, I think, this free reign given to pretty much anybody on the floor that wants to take a jump shot anytime they want to or a three-point shot. You know, coaches kind of just don't even bat an eye at it. Everybody on the roster has the green light to do that. When I played, it was two or three guys on the roster kind of had that mentality. Now it's pretty much the entire roster, except for maybe a couple of bigs that are simply relegated to screen and dive. Everybody else has freedom to do it. As a result, the game is very entertaining because you're seeing an incredible shot making on a nightly basis. You're also seeing, I think, more than ever, team gets up 20. It means nothing in this league anymore. No. I mean, those leads yeah. get erased. Those leads get erased so commonly, and they didn't used to. If you got up 20 in the 90s with, with the, the, you know, what the score of the game was going to end up being and how physical the defenses were and the lack of you know, three point shooting at that volume, that was a that was a hole you couldn't dig out of. Now. Teams fall behind. I see it every night. Teams fall behind 16, 18 points in the first half. They do not even sweat it. At some point, they know they're probably going to be in a one-possession game. And and I think that's a big part of why the league is entertaining because, you know, you, you never have to tune out if a team gets a big lead. Your team's still in it if you're a fan because of the number of three-point shots taken. Tim, I'm just sitting there listening to you, and I'm, 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 I'm going to get away from just, uh, you know, the, the league for a second and, and talk more technically. You kind of broke down – uh, and I'm 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 putting words in your mouth, sorta. You kind of broke down why there are a lot of bad shots because there are a lot of guys taking shots and they're not always good shots. But from a guy who's been there, done that, who led the league as you talked about, what makes a good shot other than just being open? I, I love I love first of all your point. That is what I'm saying, and I'm, I I see it every night. I think shot quality in the NBA is 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 not overall very good. There's no patience. There's no patience on possessions. The teams that move the basketball um, and change sides to the floor with it still are the teams that you're expecting to win a championship. Those are the, those are the teams that are on a short list. And eventually, if, if even those teams, if they get caught up too much, you know, in, in being individualistic at the wrong time, they're going to get bounced. 
Because the teams that you expect to advance and go far are teams that still, despite having a ton of talent at the top of their roster, they are still teams that are willing to make an extra pass to get a better shot. I think when I watch the game now, you know, anybody that gets any daylight, as soon as the ball crosses half court, shoots the basketball. <laughs> and, and I think that's, that's, that's what I'm talking about. Like, and, yeah. and, and so, look, you, you, have guys, you have guys that, you know, what's considered like a good three-point shooter now in the league percentage-wise, that's really changed as well. Now if you get a guy shooting in the upper 30s, you know, 37 38%, they're considered to be a really good three-point shooter. Like when I played, you know, you better be in the mid forties or higher. Like the year I led it, I was fifty-two percent from the three. Like that's that's kind of what you you know you kind of expected to be in that category. And the guys I was fending off were shooting at that rate. Now, the guys that are considered like good three-point shooters, a lot of those guys are in you know thirty-eight to forty percent. Um, and so mathematically, the analytics guys say, well, more of those though at that percentage, that's what you're trying to get. And they have convinced all of these teams and all of these coaching staff that that's the best way to go about it. Look, the rules dictate that that's something smart to do as well, because the lack of physicality on the perimeter means guys can get more space to get into their shots from out there a lot easier than they used to. You don't have a guy riding your hip when you come off a ball screen at 28 feet now. Now you come off a ball screen 28 feet, if the, if the big's not up, you got a lot of space because nobody's hugging you coming around that screen. So you can rise up. You see more off-the-dribble deep threes than you've ever seen because there's not a lot of contact at the point of attack. There's just more space. So guys are taking that shot because they're encouraged to take that shot. So for me, I think it still comes down to, you know, I always look at it like, you know, a shot that's taken that you know for a fact you can get at any time on that possession, that's when I start to mm-hmm. question, is this a good shot or not? Well, Legs, Eric and I uh, had the pleasure last year of um, cornering Coach Steve Clifford. You know, Cliff's an old school guy, and we were walking back to the locker room with him and started talking about this. And I said, do you think it'll ever swing back? And he says, yeah, it usually does. Every year in April where people start valuing the ball a little more. But to your point, Legs, about the game, I watched Minnesota and Boston the other night, two, three nights ago. And... It was Jason Tatum against Anthony Edwards one-on-one with four, well, actually eight other dudes kind of standing around. And, like, I just, like, I couldn't believe. I know it's changed. I know we, we play conceptually with drive, kick, swing. And in Toronto, Darko's stressing .5. You know, Nurse used to say, shoot it, pass it, dribble it, don't hold it. Like, I, I get all that, which actually was kind of the way that, you played in the, the college in the late 80s when you think of the late Bob Knight and his teams. But, like, nobody puts the ball under their any arm anymore and goes, you know, 52, 52 stop down. Like, like it, it just it doesn't happen anymore. And I, I guess as an old, old kind of old school guy, it's tough to watch some of the bad shots at key times. Yeah. But... It just seems like nobody cares legs. Like, so what? Oh, guy takes a contested fall away three with the shot clock at 16. I'm like, dude, you can get that anytime you want. Why take it yeah, now? It's funny. it's funny you say that. I was, I, was, I was watching the game the other night. I can't remember who it was. It might have been Denver. I don't remember the player, but I was watching Denver play. And obviously, this is a team that, that is still, they pass the ball because they've got you know, arguably the best passer of the game. All right, in, in their big man and how talented he is and how great he is at reading defenses. So that's a team that actually moves it. they got great continuity in their starting five. Those guys all know their roles. All that. But somebody on their team took a shot. It was like one pass up the floor, and they took a really tough like 27-footer with it you know, falling backwards. And I was like, 
as the, as the ball changed into the floor, my eyes went, I'm watching on TV, my eyes went to Mike Malone because I'm thinking, like, he's got to be having a heart attack right now on that shot. <laughs> and there's no reaction whatsoever. No reaction yeah. whatsoever. And so when you say – when you say born in the wrong time for me, I, boy, you're, you're so right from this standpoint. Number one, there's more premium, obviously, on three-point shooting than there's ever been, and that's what I did. But more than that, I look at guys like I remember watching Duncan Robinson when he had his breakout year in Miami, right? and it led to a $90 million contract when he had a couple really good years for the Heat. And I'm, and I'm watching him, and I'm saying, I can't imagine playing – and the NBA with that level of freedom where you don't have no. any filter in your mind telling yourself where you have to process, is, is this a good shot or not? Like, imagine if you could just do a lobotomy of a conscientious player like myself. Like, take that out of my mind where I don't process anymore. Is this good or bad for the team? Is this a high percentage thing? Is this what we're trying to accomplish? Like, that part of my brain is gone and all I thought about was, if my right hand is free, I'm shooting the ball. And I can't imagine what that can unlock in a player. And there's probably a lot of players that played in my era that you know didn't get enough confidence from their coach, that didn't get enough freedom when they played. They played too tight because they were trying to make every shot because there was such a, such a you know, premium when those 18 threes were taken. Like, they better go in at a high rate. And I know I played with guys that shot themselves out of the league because they couldn't. They couldn't get over that, right? And the reason is because yeah. they 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 thought about it. And guys don't think anymore. And removing that part of of the element of your brain where you have any doubt whatsoever, I can't imagine when you've got perfect shooting technique at deep range what that can do to unlock you. And that's what I see a lot of guys every night with this freedom that they play with and the confidence that they play with. And it's amazing. And I look, I I, I give the coaches credit, and I I, I applaud it. Yeah. I want every player to experience that, right? Every player. And the guys I played for, played for me when I coached AAU and all those kids I put in college all those years coaching, I tried to make them believe that. But they understood we're going to work. What we're going to do is going to lead to a good shot. What we run, how we screen, how we cut, how we move it. We're five guys connected on both ends of the floor. So the shots you're going to get are going to be good shots. But you're empowered to take those shots. So I try to give my guys confidence like that. But I know that I, play, I played with four guys, and I saw guys go through situations where they never got that freedom, and they weren't able to fully express who they are as players. More guys get to do that now than ever before. Hey, Tim, I should, I should probably hand the baton to Jonesy on this one because it's actually his point, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal it and pretend like it's mine. When we were doing our, our radio broadcast the other night of the Raptors and Spurs, uh, at one point Grady Dick was out on the floor, and Doug McDermott was on the other side for uh, for the Spurs. And and Jonesy's point, I thought it was a good one, for a guy like Grady, and it ties in, I think, to what we're talking about here, where as much as guys have freedom to shoot, you still got to be able to do some other stuff and be able to prove yeah. that you can stay on the floor beyond just your shooting. So Jonesy's point, when you think about a guy like McDermott, who's been in the league for a decade now, why? Because he can shoot and he can consistently knock it down, but he's also not a stiff on the floor. He can do some other things. So I, I guess I'm kind of transitioning that, Tim, into – when you look at Grady Dick and what the Raptors have invested in him as a number 13 pick, as a first-round guy, he's shown us already a little bit of you know some passing skills. He showed in college that he can get to the rim. Is he going to be able to defend at this level? What more can he do, does he need to do, as his career evolves here beyond the rookie season, You know, getting out your crystal ball here, Tim, in terms of what type of player he can be to have an impact at this level beyond just being a dead-eye shooter? 
Yeah, look, I think that you know, the main thing that you, you know you have to do, right? You have to prove number one that you can you can compete defensively, and that's that doesn't necessarily translate into well, you you know you have to be as athletic as the guys you're guarding, right? What it comes down to is you can be a phenomenal team defensive player and a conscientious defender that's a step ahead based on the game plan, based on the personnel, forcing guys to their weaknesses, making sure that like you know you are busting it every time when you change ends of the floor. And you, over time, when you are always in the right place at the right time, you give more trust to your head coach that, you know what, because there's always going to be doubts, right? Like, you know, what's he going to be able to do defensively? Can he compete? And then you get beat, you get crossed up one time early in the year in a preseason game, and all of a sudden you get dunked on or a guy beats your baseline, and it's like, oh, now, you know, you can't guard. And you got to fight that for a while. And then mm-hmm. eventually over time, coaches start to realize, like, you know what? There's a there's a lot of value in what what this player does because they're so advanced between the ears and what they're processing, and reading. They never miss a trap. They never miss a rotation. Every coverage on ball screen that we're that we're calling out is exactly right. They they pick up guys in transition that maybe doesn't look obvious, but they make the right flow to the right side of the floor to pick up the right guy in transition. Like that to me, early on for a guy that's a shooter coming into the league. That is something I think that everybody is questioning about you. and You've got to prove that you are not a liability on that end and you can compete. Then what happens is you start to get a little bit more leeway with missing shots. And now you stay on there longer through the misses. You miss yeah. a couple, we're going to leave you out there because you're competing on the other end. Guess what? That might, that might lead to two more looks you get where you bang both of those where before that, they were taking you out of the game. Now you're 0 for 2 going into halftime, and now you're starting to press a little bit. Well, now, if you compete defensively, they're going to let you play through those two misses, and now maybe you get a couple more opportunities, and you make those. Now you're looking like a guy that's well-rounded and contributing, but you definitely have to earn the right to play through missing shots. And that is what I think Grady Dick is probably going to be going through a little bit while he tries to find his confidence here early. Well, I, I, I'm going to stretch this one even further. I think Grady should be watching a guy like Doug McDermott, and I think McDermott being in the league as long as he has been, and Tim, he does have a conscience. Like th- he is a shooter, but he's he's the Tim Legler of this generation. Shoots a pretty good percentage. Seems to make every freaking shot against the Raptors. Uh, <laughs> competes at the other end, and has a conscience. Doesn't indiscriminately just hoist them up there. And I, I, that's why I think Grady would be, you know, I'd be getting video of, of Dougie McBuckets and, and watching him. And I, I just, I think he's a great fit on every team because now he's a 10-year vet and he does compete at the other end. And, you know, I'm going to reference that, that chat with Coach Clifford again, where he says, as a coach, sometimes you can't do that the way that you, you used to do it because now the player's upset, the agent's upset. The front office is going, hey, man, we drafted yeah. this guy for you to play him. There's a whole nother layer there. And I just, I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I think the game is real entertaining right now. I love it. But I just wonder if you were able to, like, how long does it take to adjust to that? Tim, you sent so many kids to major division one from your, your AAU programs. What do you tell those kids, like a Grady, adjusting to the next level? Because there's better players there. Yeah, it's hard. I've ever, I remember. I can. I could actually use an analogy and a story from some another player that is well known. That you guys both know Kyle Korver. Kyle Korver going into his first game in the NBA. We had a mutual friend, and he was playing in Philly, and the game was going to be in Philly. And I lived in the area, 
And so it was the night before the game, and they, 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 this friend hit me up and said, hey, you know, I'm really good type of Kyle Korver. You, can you possibly have dinner with us and just give him some advice, man, on, on you know, as he starts his NBA career? And now it was similar in this way. Kyle Korver was a two-time Missouri Valley Conference Player of the Year. Now, you know what that means? Mm-hmm. That means when you're, when you're the player of the year in a conference, guess what? And I, and I was, you know, I was all Big Five, Big Five Hall of Fame, all league three times in my conference. You know what that means? It means you do whatever the hell you want when you're a college player, yep. basically. Okay, so so Kyle Korver, Kyle Korver could post up when he wanted to. He could ISO when he wanted to. He could shoot obviously threes whenever the hell he wanted to. He was the man. Everything flowed through him. So what I said to him that night was, "All right, here's what you have to do if you want to have a long career in this league. You need to understand from this point forward on every roster." There's going to be two or three guys at the top, but certainly if you're if you're on a, a, at least a mediocre to above average to a good team, that are allowed to do all the stuff that you got to do when you were the Missouri Valley Conference Player of the Year. The rest of the guys on the roster, you better do one thing that is elite level that separates you from most people on earth, and you're going to do that for that particular team, and it might be. You might be you're a guy that comes off the bench and you're a backup point guard and you can pick up the ball 94 feet and you can turn point guards and you can guard for 15 minutes a night and wear guys down a little bit or make great decisions with the ball on the other end. You might be a guy that's going to – you better go get you know rebounds per minute. You better be one of the best in the league. You're going to get 15 minutes a night and you better be going after the ball like your life depends on it. Uh, if you're a shooter, at this point, Kyle, I said, hey, to say this too, but you're going to be – judged and paid the rest of your life can you make can you take and make three-point shots that's what the Sixers brought you in to do the other stuff you're going to have to compete at it you're going to have to handle the ball without turning it over you're going to have to compete defensively yeah you got to do all those things but at the end of the day you better you better understand you have to be elite at something because there are thousands of guys that are just pretty good at a lot of stuff, but they're not great at anything, and they are not going to play in the NBA for a long time. Tim, this seems like a, a great way for me to transition into a real simple question. Talking about being elite, how good, and we're only we're less than 10 games in, how good do you think Wembenyana has a chance to be? Yeah, look, I think, you know, he, he's never quite seen – all of this in one package of this length, mm-hmm. right? We just haven't seen it. Now, you know, he's, he's, he's a guy that's going to – we've seen what he can do handling the basketball and shooting the basketball. But right now, most of what he's doing is simply because he's bigger and longer than anybody else on the floor. Most of it's all height-related. Those skills are there, but he's finding out, like, everything's happening so much quicker at this level with with traffic and where guys are when you put it down and how much more difficult it is to get into your shot on the perimeter when you're now being guarded by an elite level athlete at six eight and up that can that can get off the floor and contest like nothing you saw when you were in europe and so my point being this we haven't even come close to seeing what this guy is going to be and he's already making his mark on both ends of the floor because he's he's long, he's got great stride, he's got great instincts. I think the most important thing he has is an obsession to be great. It's obvious when you hear him talk and, and you hear about his work. This isn't a guy that's like coming into the league and like, hey, want you know, I just want to be a really good player. He wants to go he wants to be one of the greatest to ever do it. And you can just tell that about him. 
So that's the first thing he's got to have, and he has it. All the skills are there. Now he has to get used to the pace, the speed, the athleticism, the physicality, like what this looks like. And when you see little splashes of what this guy's capable of, it, it, you're talking about somebody who literally might end up doing stuff in two or three years that this league has never seen. I mean, I yeah. think he's got that kind of upside potential. It's, it's almost freakish in, in what he can do with that kind of length. And when there's, there's a bunch of guys on the court smaller than him and he is still able to, to beat him to the spot, to handle the ball and get into his mid-range, like all the stuff that he's doing, and he hasn't even come close to figuring out what the NBA is all about or what his actual potential is. When he gets that all together, um, man. And I'll tell you what he's also going to do. He's going to make San Antonio a lot more relevant than we ever thought they would be a lot sooner. This looks like it's going to get there faster, and it's not just because of him. they got some other nice young pieces on that team, and they look like they're having a hell of a lot of fun playing. And Pop is giving these guys freedom, but it all comes down to Wembenyama. He has shown me enough to know this is going to happen sooner than I thought when the San Antonio Spurs are actually a very interesting, relevant team again. Yeah, Tim, you talk about the eras again. Well, I'd have liked to have seen a Ralph Sampson like Wemby in Uh, this era because they never let Ralph do that. He played, I mean, he played for Bill Fitch, right? He had to probably file applications to take a shot outside of 20 feet, right? But, um, you know, I would have loved to have seen that. But that's, to me, that's, that's what I'm seeing now. I'm looking at a guy with like a Ralph Sampson type package that's allowed to, as you say, have the freedom. And, and speaking of freedom, there's a guy in Toronto and Scotty Barnes that looks like he's getting a little bit more freedom. He's worked on his game. Um, you know, he's, it's one of those where he got, as you said, he got to do whatever he wanted. And then he realized they're playing towards his weaknesses. He really worked on his jump shot in the off season. I don't know how much you've seen Tim, but you know, you get a guy in his third year and starts to figure the league out. As you said, things start to slow down. What do you think about Scotty for this upcoming season? Absolutely love Scotty Barnes. I loved him coming out. I loved what he did a year ago, and now he's he's shown me that he has put the work in. He's he's turned himself into a threat from the perimeter. I didn't know if he would ever get to. Certainly not this soon. Um, the fact that he's up to you know five and a half three point attempts a game. He's shooting forty two percent from three point line now. I don't know if those numbers are sustainable. I don't know if he ends up north of forty. But he's shown me enough to know he'll be somewhere in that in that area. Like he's he's going to be around that area. And I didn't know that Scotty Barnes was going to be able to do that. He looked to me like a guy that was going to be one of the most versatile players in the NBA. And, and but mainly we were going to talk about his defense and his ability to guard a bunch of different positions and with his length and just his, his ability to handle the ball and make plays and, and, you know, occasionally have a decent scoring night. I thought maybe that was going to be Scotty Barnes' ceiling. And he showed me that that's, that was selling him short. He's going to be better than that offensively. He already is. And it's been, honestly, a breath of fresh air to watch a guy that could have made a ton of money in this league just being what I described. I mean, he, mm-hmm. he could have been like a maybe a slightly upgraded offensive version of Draymond Green, and guess what? You go down as a Hall of Famer, you pull that off. So he could have been very content to be that. He, he obviously wants to be more than that, and, he, and he's turned himself into um, to a scorer that's a legitimate threat much earlier in his career than I thought was possible, if, if he was ever going to be able to do it. Tim, we appreciate the time as always. Love chatting with you, and uh, we'll we'll probably bug you again at some point in a couple of months through the season. All the best, Tim. Love coming on. You guys never bug me. Hit me up whenever you want. 
That was NBA veteran, 10-year NBA vet, ESPN NBA analyst and co-host of All Day with Adam Mayers on the City Network, Tim Legler-Jonesy. Always, always love chatting with Tim Legler. He, he's so knowledgeable, has a great feel for the game. I'm surprised every year that he's back as an analyst and not on somebody's bench uh, as an assistant coach. But uh, good for us. We get we get to hang with him and, and get to chat with him and, and get to pick his brain. So I'm... I'm uh, I'm thankful for that. Well, I'm going to leave folks with a little tease to close the show for week one. First of all, again, great to be back. Thanks to producer Austin Mackey for putting it all together this week, and we're going to try and bring you the best of the best every week on Smith & Jones with the guests. But starting next week, uh, we might have a little surprise for you where you might be able to tune into Smith & Jones on multiple platforms outside of just your standard podcast feeds and whatnot. So we'll just leave it at that. We'll give you more info as it unfolds. But in the meantime, make sure you are subscribed to Smith & Jones wherever you get said podcast, Google, Apple, Spotify, or otherwise. Rate, review, like it, share it. Let's start climbing those rankings again, folks, because we are thrilled to be back for another season of Smith & Jones.